The origins of electrogravitics can be traced back to Nikola Tesla's work with high-voltage shock discharges at the turn of the 20th century, and somewhat later to Thomas Townsend Brown's relatively unpublicized discovery that electrostatic and gravitational fields are closely intertwined. Unfortunately, the electrogravitic effect has, for the most part, been ignored by mainstream academics, because the phenomenon isn't anticipated by either classical electrostatics or general relativity. Thomas Townsend Brown was born in 1905 to a well-to-do Zanesville, Ohio family. At an early age, he displayed a keen interest in space travel and dreamed of one day traveling into space himself. His discovery of the electrogravitic phenomena occurred during his high school years when his interest in space travel led him to toying with a Coolidge tube, a high-voltage X-ray-emitting vacuum tube. Brown had the insight to mount the tube on a delicate balance to investigate whether it might produce any thrust. To his surprise, the tube moved every time that it was turned on. Ruling out X-rays as the cause of this mysterious force, he traced the effect to the high voltage he was applying to the tube's plates. After additional experiments, Brown eventually developed an electrical capacitor device, which he termed the gravitator. One version consisted of a wooden box two feet long and four inches square that contained a series of massive electrically conductive plates made of lead and separated from one another by electrically insulating sheets of glass, which served as the capacitor's dielectric medium. When energized with up to 150,000 volts of direct current, Brown's gravitator developed a thrust in the direction of its positively charged end. In 1955 and 1956, under the sponsorship of the French government, Thomas Townsend Brown conducted a series of vacuum chamber experiments at facilities made available by Société Nationale de Constructions Aéronautiques du Sud-Ouest, a Paris-based aeronautical corporation. There, Brown flew a pair of miniature saucer-shaped airfoils in a high vacuum of less than one billionth of an atmosphere. According to alleged witness reports, not only did the disks propel themselves more efficiently inside of a vacuum, but they also sped faster since, without ion leakage, they could be energized with greater voltages. One thing is for certain, the government and military seem to be hiding something. In its March 9, 1992 issue of Aviation Week and Space Technology magazine, they made the surprising disclosure that the B-2 Advanced Technology Bomber electrostatically charges its exhaust stream and the leading edges of its wing-like body. Although these disclosures were framed in the context of enhancing the B-2's radar invisibility, it is believed that they are in fact part of an electrogravitic drive capability. Aviation Week obtained this information from a small group of renegade West Coast scientists and engineers who were formerly associated with black research projects, which are defense research projects that are so secret that even their very existence is classified. Northrop, the prime contractor for the B-2, had been experimenting with applying high-voltage charge to aircraft hulls since at least 1968, when at an aerospace sciences meeting held in New York in January of 1968, scientists from Northrop's NOR-Air division reported that they were beginning wind tunnel studies on aerodynamic effects of applying high-voltage charges to the leading edges of high-speed aircraft bodies. Similar research was carried out in 1965 by the Grumman and Avco corporations. Interestingly, in 1994, Northrop bought out and merged with Grumman. 
Brown also called attention to this effect in his 1960 electrokinetic apparatus patent, which describes using a flame jet generator to place a high-voltage positive charge on a needle-like electrode at the front end of a rocket. Aerospace companies later put Brown's suggestions into use. A spike was placed on the nose of a rocket and caused to emit a high-voltage arc. Wind tunnel studies showed that the resulting electric field pushed the bow shock front away from the nose of the rocket so that it no longer contacted the main body of the missile, and hence substantially reduced the air drag. Now, there's a big difference between using high-voltage electrostatics to reduce air drag versus producing gravitational effects. If the presence of extremely large electric fields can affect local gravity, it could be the breakthrough that scientists and gravity researchers have been waiting for. Or maybe they've just been ignoring it all along. Either way, the information I have just provided you with should be enough to warrant a further investigation. According to Dr. Eugene Podklitnov, high-voltage electrostatic fields produce a polarization of the vacuum energy density, or a polarization of the subatomic particles which constitute the vacuum, and thereby produce gravitational effects. Welcome to The Machine, everyone. I am your host, Mario, here with my co-host, Jeff Rowe. Journey with us as we adventure into conspiracy theories and the unexplained. Welcome back, everybody. It's uh, It's been a little while, Jeff Rowe. We've, uh, we've neglected our listeners here for a few weeks, right? Our apologies. Uh, life gets in the way sometimes. We do the best we can to punch these out as much as possible but sometimes there's hang-ups that's right jeffro don't beat yourself up because this is all your fault and none of my fault i don't want you to get too hard on yourself here even though you are completely to blame and not myself i just want you to know that nobody blames you we just know that it's your fault and none of my fault mea culpa mea culpa I'm messing with you, buddy. Uh, but it's it's good it's good to get back into this discussion. We're gonna get, we're going to continue from the last podcast episode that we re- that we released. If I can speak, we released. What about three weeks ago? I think it was. Yeah, it was about three weeks ago. About three weeks ago, uh, we're going to continue on with the second part of it, which is lost civilizations, detached. Oh, detached civilizations. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Uh, detached civilizations, which, I mean, it goes hand-in-hand hand with lost civilizations. Yeah, uh, to know. a degree, to a degree, yes. Uh, but before we before we do get into that, just uh, a few things we need to touch on here. Uh, one of those things being our winner. Our t-shirt winner. We our had everybody winner. submit a design. And we got a lot of designs, and I want to thank everybody for submitting designs. Um, 
again, a lot of cool stuff that we've seen. You have to dwindle it down. I mean, there can only be one. Highlander style, right? Highlander style. So, that being said, drum roll, please. Hope. Hope is our winner. Hope is our winner. Hope is our winner, which is uh, really cool. I like that hope is the winner, right? It kind of... Have hope. We could all use a little bit more hope these days. We could. So, congratulations to Hope. Um, as soon as we get everything up and rolling, you are going to get a signed T-shirt of your design by from us, right? From Jeffro and myself. Absolutely. So that is on the way. I also want to give a few shout-outs to. Uh, uh, so some of our listeners that did happen to reach out to us during the time that we were on our little sabbatical here. Um, Torin from Across the Pond. Thanks, Torin. Thank you, Torin. Uh, Joey. 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 And Cy all reached out to us during our uh, little three-week sabbatical here. So thank you, everybody, for listening and tuning in and, you know, Make giving us a reason to do this, continuing to talk. Otherwise, it's just two guys bullshitting all the time and people going, what the fuck are you talking about? Which is common to us here, but it's nice to know that we're not the only ones who are crazy out there in podcast land. So, Jeffro, what, what have we got here? Yeah, if from, from the beginning here, the intro clip there with a lot of science, we, we ended the Breakaway Civilization episode one with... The science that a lot of us didn't know anything about, going all the way back to the 1850s. And this whole concept of a breakaway civilization, you know, again, to rehash it one more time. The the thought behind a breakaway civilization is, is hard to grasp because we think this this technology that seems elaborate and, and novel isn't out there. But it, as we talk about all the time on this podcast, we have information and, and dark projects all the time in government. And what we're trying to what we're trying to figure out here is how much legitimacy there could be to some of the stuff that we discuss, and what, what's the actual viability of some of this technology. Like in the beginning clip, we were talking about anti gravitics. Anti gravitics is something that even now is considered fringe yet there's some evidence going back to that beginning clip that a gentleman by the name of Thomas T. Brown and Tesla himself were talking about electrogravitics, anti-gravitics going all the way back into the 20s and again this is information that was relatively new to me when I discovered it a few months ago and I had never come across this type of information. It was never presented to me in school or anywhere else. So, yeah, uh, I, my interest got peaked, and this this plays into a lot of the information that we discussed in the first episode. Going ending with Keeley and his flying machine in 1896 that he presented to the War Council. So this is this is all technology pre 1900s that 
people are still trying to wrap their brains around that just can't seem to do so. And more importantly, and I'm happy you said it, with the education system and the things that we're taught in school, things that intrigue the mind, you're supposed to want to learn about uh, infectious things that you know just capture capture one's attention. This isn't one of those things. Like they don't mention this stuff in indoctrinated public schools, so you're not going to learn about this stuff. Why? Why? It's, it's information that they intentionally suppress because of what it implicates. It implicates things like free energy. It implicates things like anti you know anti gravity. Uh, it implicates freedom for the commoners. And as we progress in this episode. There's a lot of science in this stuff that's way above my head, which is the reason why we're going to present some clips so that it goes along with what we're talking about here and it gives it some more gravitas and some validity because if I were to try to go ahead and and rehash everything in my dumbed-down version, it would be very difficult. But the reason why we want to do that and the reason why I want to present the information in that manner is that I know we're considered a conspiracy, quote unquote, podcast. I think we're a little more than that, though, right? No, I, yeah, I think, I think we, we are. are. I, I feel that we are, and I know that's part of the that's uh, part of the niche. Whenever somebody's looking to, you know, oh, conspiracy, this. Well, it's we talk about conspiracies all the time, and I think what separates us as we go further and deeper into some of the research of these quote unquote conspiracies to kind of say, okay, well. Maybe not so much conspiracy, but here's why we're thinking this way. Again, I say this all the time, but I, I think we're a little more than that. Well, yeah, and, and that's what really gravitates me to some of these subjects that we cover. You and I are just regular guys. You know, I don't I don't proclaim to be a tinfoil hat or anything like that. But what I do get interested in, in is whenever a fringe subject is presented, and then all of a sudden that fringe subject has information backing it up. That hasn't, you know, fully been right. elaborated on in the public, you know, in the public domain. And and it's even like, more so, like one, once that information is out there, it's quickly squashed. Once oh, you start yeah. to, once you start to dig into it and you find reason for it, it's quickly squashed for whatever reason. Never a good reason. You can never find a good reason for killing information. There's never really a good reason other than some sort of nefarious motive right right otherwise why would it be suppressed right and that's that's when it becomes conspiracy theory that's when it's labeled that's when it's demonized and slapped with that that label right yeah absolutely and and to piggyback off of where we the beginning here uh we're talking about two scientists specifically we're just going you know loosely touch base on them but thomas brown and even nikola tesla there was an idea and speculation by the public at the time, at least the public that was in the know, theorists of the time, so to say. And I'm not, listen, I'm not a gay man, okay? <laughs> I'm not by any means, not that there's anything wrong with that. I am not a homosexual man. But the brain on Nikola Tesla, whoo, let me take a step back. Go ahead. <laughs> no, right. Uh, there, there was a famous experiment that people talk about, and we can even do a, a, probably an entire episode just based off this. And what I'm referencing is the Philadelphia experiment. Okay. And for those of, who don't know, it was an experiment by the, the military 
mm-hmm. that they proclaim that there was teleportation from one port to another. You know, this was pre-World War II. And this technology that Thomas T. Brown is touching base on, this anti-gravitics combined with Tesla's electrogravitics, there's there's an idea that there's teleportation, anti-gravity, levitation, all, all these different technologies are coming together seamlessly to come together in this experiment the Philadelphia experiment that without any sort of scientific backing, if someone describes it to you offhand immediately, you're thinking, that's crazy. There's no way anything like that could be possible. Well, I think one of the things that would catch anybody's mind if they were to look into the Philadelphia experiment, and I'm sure they will, is what actually was found with this Philadelphia experiment. So you're saying teleportation, right? And if you look into the Philadelphia experiment, I'm not going to get too far into it, but basically there were people on a naval, and there was a naval ship, right? right? And they were found fused into the metal. Am I correct here? Correct. Yeah, that was some of the after effects. That was some of the covering up stages because it was a basically a scientific experiment gone awry. And they were there was stories that have come out from eyewitnesses that talked about how there was a ship, the USS Philadelphia, in port. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what port it was, but it was also identified in another port several hundred miles away, I believe, in Baltimore area. And then relocated back to the original port the next morning. And during that, they there was speculation in some eyewitness account that some of the sailors might have been fused into the metal itself. Yeah, like we're, we're talking human, human bodies, human people. We're talking flesh, body parts, whatever, just fused into solid steel of a ship. It's the, the I mean, horrible. It's horrible, and not but to get, fascinating, right? Yeah, fascinating. Well, not to get too far into it. Again, if you go back to some Achilles information, Achilles experiments during the eighteen nineties, when he was talking about resonance and frequency and vibration, mm-hmm. it would almost seem that some of this technology that we discussed on the first episode in this series, going forward. Anytime you can have a frequency sort of vibrate the molecules of a solid, that you can almost have that metal or that material become liquid and move through it and the vibration almost like a melding of of body parts could possibly integrate itself with a solid object. like, Like when you think you have to fart and it's not a fart. You get vibration, right? And you're like, oh, you know, I got the bubble guts and everything. You know, maybe I'll sneak one out. Bad idea. Bad idea. Because next thing you know, you've got fusion and and things going on underneath that you really don't want. Right. Bad. Not a good comparison. Close. I don't know. Some of those. Some of those could be nuclear. So. Very nuclear. (laughs) So possible, a good comparison. But no, yeah, um, before we go too far, I wanted to go ahead and uh, play another clip that explains the the Brown-Baringfield effect, which is what this effect 
was described as uh, because T. Brown, along with his anti-gravitics and his, his electrogravitics technology, basically, as in the beginning clip describes, he is able to discover the the beginning mechanics of UFO technology, actual UFO technology. Right, because in the clip he was talking about a wind tunnel, like a vortex wind tunnel that he would put a saucer in, and it would just stay still. It was just, right. it was just hover. So like the wind would hold it up, almost like creating a zero gravity around it, right? Exactly. And that's sort of this next clip. It kind of describes the science a little bit more. So let's go ahead and uh, play that right here. Experiments with electricity are very well known. It is likely that both Tesla and T. Townsend Brown worked together on the famous Philadelphia experiment, in which it was discovered that large amounts of electricity could cause a ship to disappear and possibly relocate. We know so much more about Tesla than we do about T. Townsend Brown. Why? Who was he? And what did he do? I was att attending a group we had in Oregon, Portland, Oregon, called the Flatlanders. They were sort of rebels, scientific rebels. And that's where I learned about Townsend Brown. And one fellow took me and we Xeroxed his whole file on Townsend Brown's work. I thought, my God, this is true. You know, there is this correlation between charge and gravity here. Brown was uh, researching this way back, as early as the beginning of the 20th century. There appears to be a direct relationship between electrical charge and gravity, and the reason for this is the Beefield-Brown effect. This originated from the results of Dr. Thomas Thompson-Brown, and then Dr. Beefield applied it scientifically. He would charge a capacitor to 100,000 volts, and it would be suspended from the ceiling and find it would move towards the positively charged side. He calls this electrogravitics. Brown's basic discovery is actually quite simple. If you take a piece of electrical material and charge it to a very high level, you will get gravitational thrust coming off of that metal. So for example, if you have a disc that has a negative plate on the bottom and a positive anode on top, you will get thrust in the upward direction. If you can create what's called unbalanced forces on the capacitor so that the charge on one side of the capacitor pushes on the capacitor one way a different amount than the other charges push the other way, the capacitor is going to move. And Brown found that this happens in asymmetrical capacitors where one plate is small and the other is very large. So he had these things that look like flying saucer-like umbrellas for one plate and the other would be a ball and the, th the whole thing would lift. He was able to get this to lift its own weight plus 10% uh, extra weight, quite amazingly. Now this is just part, a small part of Brown's research we're talking about. He also got into electrokinetics. The gravitational flow going into the black hole has the same flux equations as the physics of an atom. fact during the war what was he doing you know they say radar work it was at the time of the philadelphia experiment there's a lot of uh, rumors that he was on this and he has never denied it when people would ask him he would not say but he would not deny there's only one field and we've been tricked into thinking that gravity is one thing and electrical energy is something else but they actually go hand in hand 
Brown was highly respected. Uh, he worked in Naval Research Laboratory. He had very strong connections with the military. He made demonstrations of some uh, disks to I mean, the Navy out at uh, Pearl Harbor that reportedly were flying at hundreds of miles per hour. So what happens is the classified world takes these, classifies those technologies, and essentially runs away with them, preventing the rest of the world, literally preventing the rest of the world through legal means from developing into uh, those types of technologies. So, Jeffro, we're talking about teleportation experiments in a Philadelphia experiment back in 1943. We're experimenting with teleportation possible teleportation teleportation possible anti-gravitics like they said in the clip there something that was interesting that i found was uh he was talking about how with this technology brown was out in pearl harbor around this time late 30s early 40s possibly doing some of these technologies performing some of these aerial effects prior to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Maybe it wasn't just a strategic attack by the Japanese. Maybe they saw some exotic technologies going on and they felt that they needed to interact and interfere, interfere with yeah. any, any technology that might be you know, the, the Americans might have been doing at the time. Again, and anytime you start getting into these black projects, you start getting into some of this money that's being hidden and some of these things that the taxes, our tax money is going towards that we have no idea that it's going towards. Anytime you have the ability to obscure where money is being sent and there's not, you know, basically transparency – this money can be funding damn near anything they want to be funding. Right. like Almost like, you know, billions of dollars coming up missing before a collapse of two specific towers that, you know, we covered in the past. And I know there's skeptics out there. I've actually seen some uh, feedback on some of our some of our podcast ratings. Where they're they're talking about uh, I don't know who it was I'm not going to call you out but there were skeptics and we welcome all skeptics you know uh, email us talk to us come on the show and and have a conversation with us because you know people love to hear both sides of a story if you don't listen to both sides you don't learn so and I encourage anybody anybody out there who's listening to the podcast right now if if you hear an episode that we did and you want to reach out to us and just go hey you know what I think you guys got it wrong on this. Let's revisit that. Let's bring you on. Let's revisit that. Let's talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, again, and we constantly say this, that's the only way we grow. Right. Because they may bring up a, a valid point that we didn't previously consider, and we may bring up a valid point for them that they didn't previously consider. And, you know, together, that's the only way we're going to come to any sort of real consensus because the truth is being withheld from us. So we're trying to be like detectives and trying to figure out what's really going on here. And we know we're not being told the truth. Right. So, so. That, that's the only way we can move along as a society. Right. Okay. So 
the next step in this this journey we got going on here is so we have all this technology coming out in the early 20s right with with brown going up from the 20s all the way into the 40s right but he even started way before then in the 1800s right you were talking right about- right right and we're, we're talking about on this episode you know the technology post 1900 right so going forward from there uh where where does this lead us into right we're right around mid 20s 30s 40s and how, how does this connect with some of the information that we discussed outside of just the technology advances in the first from the first episode? Well, there was this woman named Maria Orsic, okay, and she derived from guess where. Oh, you you want me to guess? Yes. All right. Let's see. Uh, Maria or what is it? Or Maria Orsic. 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 Yes. Hmm. Her mama. Her mama. Very close. Yes. I well, I'm not that. wrong, right? No, you're not wrong. Okay. Now, good. She comes from Prussia. 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 Okay. Okay, she was known as a, a channeler and uh, an empath, right? This was a time in history when all this occult technology, all this occult interest, right, in the Victorian age was extremely high. And Maria, she was part of a group called the Vril Society. Have you ever heard of the Vril Society? I have heard of the Vril Society. Okay, yeah, so the Real Society was a secret society in northern Germany from the Prussia area, which, if we remember going back to the previous episode, the gentleman by the name of Charles Dalshell was also derived from Prussia. So we're starting to see maybe a, a loose connection here between the Sonora Aero Club and then maybe this real society because what the real society basically is is the modern version of what nimza might have developed into and the real society they were interested in flight they were like a private corporate entity uh banking sort of conglomerate right so we're touching base on some of the stuff we covered in the first episode now right but connecting now connecting it Right. Into the 30s and 40s. Well, not the first episode, but the first... The first, first of this series. Of this series, yeah. Yeah, so what was interesting about the Vril Society was uh, through these channelings and through some of this alternative technology, they they had this, this interest in flight. And Maria Orsic, uh, there is a story where she had done a channeling session like a, a tarot card session or something along these lines for the elites of the German population at the time right some of the some of the higher ups some of the people that were you know influential during you know Nazi Germany time and in a specific channeling she went into some sort of trance and she came up with information that there was no way she could have come up with. Now, the story gets a little bit in depth, and again, we have another clip here, but basically, in summation, 
she started having some of these writings and the writings were in Sumerian. So you, you wait, wait, wait. We're, okay, now we're talking about we're talking about channeling with Sumerian te- channeling with somebody who's giving her Sumerian text. Right. So she was writing in, you know, not tongues, but you know, she was a text that was passed down from the Sumerian gods. Uh, well, I don't know if it was passed down, but that's how she was interpreting well, I mean, that's, information. That's where we can, that's where we can gather the text from the right, Sumerian wherever, people. Whoever she was channeling was possibly of a Sumerian. The Sumerian lineage. people had learned from. Correct. Connect the dots, right? I mean, right. that's thus far that's what we know. Unless there's more information that we're about to learn of. And upcoming history, you know, who knows? Who knows what the future holds? But right now, if you're connecting the dots, the Sumerians learn a way of communication through the Sumerian gods. So this person is channeling uh, somebody from the Sumerian era or Sumerian energy. Right. He's giving her I believe Sumerian... The, I believe it was Aldebaran. Apparently, these people she was channeling from a star called Aldebaran, which was in the Taurus constellation which in our previous episodes we've talked about the Taurus and the bull and the bull god and the Merovingians so it's very interesting that this channeling information came to her from this area now this clip we're about to play what is this clip of well we've got actually two clips here one is uh to get some background of the real society and some of their connections to Vol and Braun actually okay um with these sketches that the Vril Society got from Maria Orsic, there's actually evidence that the Vril Society took these diagrams and these sketches and actually created a flying saucer of their own. She, what? Yes. It was it was called the RFZ-2. So the Vril Society in of itself was, again, the secret society that was controlled basically by the elites and bankers out of this area known as Prussia, which was the same area operated by a secret banking society called NIMSA. So there's there's highly speculative highly speculative that NIMSA actually evolved into Varel. the Varel Society. So let's 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 play the clip that'll explain it a little bit better than I have. But German obsession with cutting edge technology went back farther in time. Everything from flying wings and some things otherworldly, such as anti-gravity. Now I know my audience is rolling their eyes, especially when I covered anti-gravity last time, but bear with me for a hot minute. Anti-gravity research had started in the Weimar Germany in the 1920s. The RFZ-1 craft was the first anti-gravity aircraft that also happened to be circular in shape. The craft wasn't constructed by German military, but by the ultra-secretive and occultist Viral Society based in Berlin. Hermann Oberth's book, By Rocket to Interplanetary Space, published in 1923, did much to spur on German experimentation in aircraft and spacecraft development. It resulted in the formation in 1927 of the Society for Space Travel, of which the scientist, Werner von Braun, was a member. Von Braun was a true genius. 
Within a few years, he would also go on to invent the infamous V-2 rocket, or pronounced in German the V-2 rocket, that stunned the Allies. And then he would also go on to become the head of the Saturn V rocket project at NASA that sent men to the moon. In 1928, however, the Society produced the world's first rocket-powered automobile, the Opel Rack 1, developed together with Fritz von Opel, after whom the Opel car company is named. We flash forward to 1933 when Adolf Hitler seized power in Germany, and almost instantly the Nazi party took command of all rocket and aircraft development, with all astronautical and aviation-related societies being nationalized and Nazified. This was done very deliberately. Even in the 1930s, Hitler and his henchmen were convinced that it would be the cutting-edge technology, including spacecraft, that would allow the Third Reich to rule the world. So here we, here we have information that Hitler takes over in 33 and sort of just basically by power absorbs any any of these societies that have any of this advanced technology, whether it's in the military or in this case privatized, you know, corporation or, or occultist clubs, right? And uh, it's just, it's very interesting that Walt, uh, Warner von Braun was actually part of this real society as well. And boy, this Warner von Braun character, he keeps he keeps popping up everywhere, doesn't he? Sure does. Interesting. Just, just coincidence, or yeah, you know, he he has his hands in many different things. You know, he doesn't carry anything over from one thing to the uh, other or anything like that. So, you know, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Just, just keep it moving, right? Okay. Well, let's go ahead and do that. Let, let, dig in a little bit more into uh, Maria Orsic. So, again, she. She's making all these channelings, and she, unbeknownst to her, starts writing in this to what her looked like calligraphy. So she didn't know what it was, but it was somebody that was there, one of the elites, which was in the the Nazi military, recognized. Oh shit! So, like, I imagine there's documentation of this, right? Well, yeah, the it's. I'm not sure where the documentation would be, but yeah, I mean, they've, they talked about how whenever she did this writing, there was a, a scientist there and he was like, Oh shit, I've actually seen this type of work before. And, um, there, there's so much nuance to this information and it seems so crazy and it doesn't even on, on the surface it feels like there's no connection to things. So I want to make sure we we hit all of our eyes, dot all of our eyes, and cross all our teeth. So there's there's one more short clip I wanted to play with Maria Orsic before we go ahead and elaborate any more on her. And this basically touches base with some of her Sumerian writings and some of her teachings, and it actually leads us into another scientist and some of his technology that we're going to dive into. So here's that clip. I think is the story of Maria Orsic. Experts suggest that Maria Orsic was not only a professional channeler for a secret society, but also part of a mysterious Germanic culture of mysticism, 
There's actually this history of an area of Germany called Prussia, which was actually a nation of its own back in the 1800s, where there are a group of, you know, um, industrialists with a lot of money who are fascinated in all these ancient mysteries, who looked at the ancient texts through physicists' eyes and had ideas about how to create airships and spacecraft and how to define gravity. Researchers have tied Maria Orsic to a secret society called the Vril. This society performed exercises to awaken what the ancients referred to as Chi. The legend of Maria suggests that one night, she was channeling for a group of social elite when an otherworldly being came through and claimed he was from the star system, Aldebaran. He had a message. Maria, still in a trance, began writing in a mysterious language and drawing sketches for a spacecraft. Experts were brought in to decipher the language and the sketches. These experts suggested that the language was in Sumerian, and the drawings resembled a device a man named Victor Schauberger created. During the early 1920s, Schauberger had invented something called the repulsine, which was a disc-shaped object that used various air vortexes that defied the laws of physics. Maria not only drew almost his exact invention, but gave instructions on how it would work, written in a Sumerian language. Maria Orsic made sketches, and they were kind of very technical in nature, something that a woman of her background would probably not really have a great knowledge of. And actually, from those sketches, the Vril Society actually made different prototype devices, craft. One of them was called the RFZ-2, that actually flew. So what do you think about that? Now, now what we have here is we have what seemingly is a, a connection between secret societies that originate in, in northern Berlin, Prussia area. And she, this, this Maria Orsic, she's channeling these sketches and these diagrams of a disc-like shaped object that then the Vril Society tries to imitate and they actually get some results from these with the RFZ, or RFZ1 and RFZ2 they actually get to fly so it's a technology that is completely unknown to man completely unknown something that nobody could ever possibly dream up in their wildest dreams to even come close to and all of a sudden she has every single key to creating this machine well seemingly nobody else would know and that's where this video is sort of alluding to there was this this gentleman by the name of Victor Schauberger okay he came up with something that was called the repulsing which was what was so fascinating about her channeling was that she had no connection with this guy because this guy is from Austria right and whenever they brought these experts in to analyze what it was that she was able to write down they went and they, once the one scientist and the Nazi elites recognized what she was channeling, because he knew of Schauberger's work, because Austria at that time was part of, you know, the, the expanding German territories. This repulsing technology, basically, if I could sort of describe it, if you can think of a conch shell, you know, like how in a conch shell, it's got these rotational sort of uh, Fibonacci sequence type wrote, uh, designs, designs right? right? And then within the conch shell itself, it almost has these fan type 
channels, right? In the, in the channel itself, it looks like a fan. Well, what this repulsing imitates is something like that in a round shape where I, I could only imagine it would act like a pinwheel. You know, like how a pinwheel's got almost like a cupping device inside the the arm or leg of the right, spokes. It's like a propulsion and, for the wheel. Right, it's like almost like a wind turbine or it's almost like a... Right, like a water wheel of some right, kind. Right, But within a certain rotational device of this uh, repulsing. And again, scientifically, there's a lot of cool things that he did. He was, he was considered a naturalist. He was considered somebody that looked at nature in his world and basically tried to imitate nature. Things like uh, watching how birds flew up, you know, fly or flew. Uh, watching how salmon would go upstream against the current. And his technology at the time was cutting edge, right? And he was able to, with this repulsing, uh, the the thought was he was able to get free energy from this thing by just using water, you know, rotating in, into this device. Yeah. And there's a, man, there's a whole nother subject with him, but there's some really cool videos out there, some of the... Some of more which I clipped. And like I said in previous episodes, the more I dug into this, the more fascinated I got by it. But there was so much information to absorb. It's important to go ahead and and precisely have our audience know exactly where the science is coming from to see where it's going to go. But uh, before we get into some of his technology, I'm curious into hearing some of your thoughts on Maria Orsic and the Real Society and some of this technology being piggybacked off of the technology that we're now learning from the all the way back to the 1850s up to now with anti-gravitics in the 20s and 30s with Brown. Now we're kind of getting into the 30s and 40s here and we're talking about technology that's far beyond anything that the public had any idea about. Technology that's unheard of even today. I mean, right now we're 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 still using fossil fuels, and there's a big push for uh, electric, you know, battery lithium. Like, and it's like, okay, we're going from one to the other, and it doesn't seem like the next step is that much better than the last step. To be honest with you, it almost seems like a lateral move in some ways and in other ways. You know, you could talk about emissions, and but then you could also talk about, you know, mining for lithium. It's it's one and the other. When in fact, we're talking about you and I are sitting here talking about technology that is 100% clean, 100% efficient, 100% free. So, and one of the things that came to my mind. When you were talking about uh, Maria Orsic and her channeling and getting this information from an entity of some sort, from a different constellation, right? Right. Aldebaran, some sort of Sumerian intelligent interaction. It, it reminds me of the story of Leonardo da Vinci. And, uh, you know, again, we're, we're going to do an episode on because Leonardo da Vinci is such a fascinating person throughout history. Just like this stuff that this guy knew, he should not have known. And one of those things that uh, 
whenever we're talking about this, again, I go back to Leonardo da Vinci is when he disappeared into a cave for a certain amount of time. I know it was a long time and he come out. Next thing you know, he's building flying machines that look like helicopters. Doesn't entirely make sense, but it's almost like he channeled it. He tapped into some sort of, uh, oh, I don't know, Akashic record. To be able to come up with this type of technology, you know, some somebody's speaking to him, something is speaking to him on this record, and he taps into it, and he's able to, you know, make it to fruition, it, it, like it comes to him, and he puts it in action. So, yeah, that, that's kind of what I got from this Maria Orsic story, you know, kind of the same, same, kind of the same thing, excuse me. But we're talking, we're no longer talking. You know, 1600s. Now we're talking 1800s, early 1900s, where we're not talking about a helicopter. We're talking about zero gravity technology, which is leaps and bounds beyond what we can even fathom right now. Or at least what they're telling us. That they what have they're telling us, to. right? Right. Because I mean, I'm sure you know, if there's no money to be had, there's no reason for the public to know. Right. And again, that's that's why I'm hammering home these names and these scientists, scientific names. You know. Our audience can go back, and if they're interested in any of these people, they can look into it for themselves. But the science is actually sort of facilitating a lot of this theory or conspiracy or however you want to describe it. You know, constantly, whenever we bring up subjects, it's like, well, there's no way that's possible. That's not even plausible. We can't even do that today. What are you talking about? Well, if you dig into it just just below the surface and you you know don't just poo poo it right away mm-hmm. this information is out there and uh so again like with this victor schauberger there's uh some more information i want to go ahead and uh you know have the audience listen to uh, here's another clip what was happening in germany during this period was a collective effort to develop this technology and indeed the sources of such advancements were not the typical acquirement of knowledge that you may expect. Austrian forest caretaker and naturalist Victor Schauberger had previously made what we would call quantum advancements in the understanding of machine technology and indeed anti-gravity material. Rudolf Hess ordered the detention of the great scientist and he was forcefully put to work on the development of the machine we now call UFO or flying saucers. The discovery that Victor Schauberger made really should have been for the greater good of humanity, but instead these advancements have been secretly suppressed even to this day. What he discovered was something that is now known as vortex mechanics. He made these discoveries through the observation of water vortexes and became fascinated by the way water purified itself through the process of whirlpooling and streaming. He pioneered the vortex technology through these understandings. Consider the behavior of salmon going upstream against the natural force of the water. Schauberger determined this was possible through something he called implosion vortexes that was created by the way the water was spinning. He then developed turbines to replicate this momentum. He then encased this device in an egg-shaped enclosure and essentially created an anti-gravity engine that was powered by water. This later became known as the repulsing 
and the Nazis tried to generate the flying saucer from this technology, Schauberger believed that birds did not fly, but they were flown. And all that we had to do to replicate this was to tap into the ether around about us in order to achieve this movement. The journey of this process is dated back to 18th century Prussia, where an overwhelming interest existed in airship and anti-gravity technology. Could it really be that the development of these things was actually the dawn to the finding of ancient texts and blueprints? And could it be that the search for other ancient materials and texts by the Germans in the 20s and 30s was an attempt to track down this lost and ancient knowledge? Would it surprise you if we were to tell you that Austro-Hungarian physicist Hermann Oberth, who is considered the founding father of modern rocketry and astronautics, actually states that we have been helped by the people of other worlds. It inevitably leads back to the ancient Hindu texts in Vimana, where they describe Mercury as being the ancient power source of these ancient craft. Consider using mercury instead of water in Victor Schauberger's Vortex engine. This puts these science fiction type of machines well within the realms of possibilities when applying this to the realistic theories of this brilliant inventor. The mercury would create a gyroscopic action, introduce electricity to these principles, and it becomes a plasma of electrified gas that is spinning in a gyroscopic movement. Science has used gyroscopes for years as examples of artificial gravity and indeed anti-gravity. Any craft with these mechanics as the engine would with ease defy gravity and movement, especially with the inclusion of mercury electrified into the vortex. And the strange and interesting thing about this is the creation of light. It would be extremely bright. Does this ring any bells, guys? A spinning saucer craft with a lit up engine area, do UFOs still seem so far-fetched that it is beyond the realms of possibility? It's no coincidence that Germany tried to develop this type of craft. They were obsessed with the ancients and indeed finding ancient text and technology. The ancients themselves were obsessed with Mercury. All over the world we see the presence of Mercury in ancient culture. The Vimana text in particularly has clear in-depth mentions of Mercury. It was not only important in ancient times, it was essential, especially in the use of technologies. Technology that, by the way, we don't even give them credit for even having. Consider the fact that Mercury can poison and kill you. You need to handle this metal with extreme care. The fumes alone are deadly. So getting this into a vortex chamber and then electrifying it in an engine is something that would have been done in a controlled environment. There is a mystery and even the Greek god Mercury is the god of flight and communication, suggesting that even the ancient Greeks understood that Mercury, flight and technology were very closely associated with each other. Anyway, guys, we will leave it at that for the moment. By the way, it's interesting to note that the technology developed through this Vortec engine and the electrification of Mercury within the gyroscopic action led to the creation of Diglock or the Bell, which is considered by many to have been able to defy gravity 
and even intersect through space and time. It's interesting to note that the device was photographed but never recovered in the aftermath of World War II, suggesting that it was successfully launched. Could it have pierced the space-time continuum into a different reality or realm or indeed into the future? So, the power of Mercury. Let's Before we uh, divulge a little bit more on Victor Schauberger, let's just quickly touch base on this Mercury element. Mercury seems to be very interesting in the flight of history and, and the sort of the story of flight throughout all time. Does it not? Yeah, even its origins, right? Yeah, well, the origins, it's uh, actually... What's interesting about its origins is mercury is made from an element called cinnabar. And cinnabar is primarily found in India. I love cinnamon. Cinnamon Toast Crunch, right? No, we're not talking about that kind of cinnamon. The cinnabar is the, the primary element of mercury, how mercury is created. So, and it's found all over the world, but there are huge droves of cinnabar in India. Interestingly, Mercury is found in India whenever we talk about Vimanas. It's speculated that these Vimanas ran off of something like Mercury. Mm-hmm. Also, you look at some of the other places in the world, you look at the first ruler of China, right? The first ruler of China, he, his origin story, just quickly, he, he's said to have descended from the heavens like a fiery dragon. Right, and you you hear this story about him in ancient aliens TV shows. All you know, he he has this this mythos to him that he descended and ruled China, and this is the same character now that has the terracotta warriors protecting him in the afterlife. You know these these clay soldiers or these um, these statues that were buried that recently found in you know last couple decades right. or mid forties or whatever I'm not exactly sure when they were discovered but yeah uh, Emperor Kenshi Huangdi I'm sure I'm destroying that so I'm sorry if I am but yeah he as you and I were mentioning he also has a pyramid again a pyramid shape complex. That these terracotta warriors are protecting in front of. And inside of this pyramid, they are the story is written that there are rivers and lakes that emulate the territory of China that he did, you know, that he was ruler. Ruler of. And these rivers are flowing full of mercury. Rivers of Mercury Underground. Rivers. Oh, that sounds familiar. Where else is that happening at? Teotihuacan? Hmm. I believe it was Teotihuacan. Uh, Isn't it interesting how in the last, we'll say, oh, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years, all of these, you know, more specifically after the year of... 2012, when people started to become more interested in ancient history, I think may, you may want to give a little bit of credit there to the uh, the ancient Mayans. So, 
when everybody was doing a little bit of research of you know the Mayan calendars in 2012 and everything, it was all end of the world, this end of the world, that. How do we know it wasn't a marking, uh, a foreseen marking into enlightenment? And then now, you know, more and more people are starting to learn about things that they didn't learn about before. Hence, also, we come into the era of the Internet where we can see and hear and compare all of these different things from around the world that maybe were hidden from the public. But now it's just so damn impossible. You really can't hide it from the public. What do you think? Funny you said Internet because I said Teotihuacan, did I not? You did. Okay. What's interesting about Teotihuacan is... They had internet? Well, they didn't quite have internet that we know of, but two parts about Teotihuacan. They did have another story about flight with Quetzalcoatl. He had his flying machine, right? Okay. But what's also very interesting about Teotihuacan is the complex looks exactly like a computer chip. Does it now? Yes. If you take an overhead view of the temple complex in Teotihuacan and you compare it up with a computer chip of today, it's an exact replica. Now, what's interesting... If that's not interesting enough, now see this is this is why I'm saying all this information coming up, it's starting to tie things together here, and it's fascinating because there was something that was found by researchers and archaeologists in Teotihuacan about five or six years ago. Guess what they found? A computer chip flowing rivers of mercury. Under a computer chip. Under a computer chip. Was wall cave with wall and the carvings of a flying serpent referred to as Quetzalcoatl. Again. There's a lot of a lot of correlations here that you can go ahead and insert your own information, but Again, we're talking about Mercury here. And then even in the clip, it talked about how Mercury was the god of flight. And god of flight and communication. Hmm. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that, you know, it's also a star in Mercury, right? It's the closest planet to the sun. So, I mean, there's people who are into numerology that'll see some connections there. But again, this element of Mercury itself, very fascinating. I'm going to, I'm going to accelerate past our timeline a little bit. We're going to go post-World War II just for a second. So right around 47, 48, because of the story of Mercury, what was interesting that the military, the U.S. military was starting to intercept was down in Argentina, off the coast of Brazil, off the coast of Argentina, down in South America. You had American naval fleets intercepting U-boats that were fleeing Germany. 
And you would never believe what was in the hall, what the payload was in these U-boats. I'm going to say flying saucers. Mercury. With flying saucers. Lots and lots of mercury. Inside of flying saucers. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Because... In the shape of bells, maybe. In the shape of bells, maybe. Recently, I'm not exactly sure of the date, but recently, there was actually one of these U-boats found, uh, crashed in the uh, Baltic Sea up by Sweden. And what they found was that that U-boat was completely full of mercury and there's some fear that there's going to be leakage of mercury into the, ocean. the fishing areas of yeah. some of uh, that country's fishing water. So, again, we've got multitudes of evidence that there was something going on with mercury. And why that mercury is important, we're going to see here real shortly. So, before we move on from the Schauberger information, the Schauberger, he was kidnapped and basically forced to work on these machines for the Germans, right? And uh, it was something that he completely did against his will just to protect his family. But he's also, he was a very peaceful man. And a lot of his technology, he really was trying to get this technology to, to benefit mankind, your free energy and all this other stuff. He was a, a, a person in love of the wilderness. And he had a quote, and I found this quote online, so I wanted to go ahead and play this quote, and then we'll go ahead and we'll move on from there. But the Schauberger character, if you guys are interested in any of his technology, it's it's out there, and they've people have tried to, tried to remake and replicate his repulsing, and we don't have all the exact diagrams of it. But they've gotten close and they've found some interesting side effects of this thing where it does have free energy possibilities. So, here's his quote. For those who don't know, Victor Schauberger was to water what Nikola Tesla was to electricity. He was a recognized genius known as the water wizard. But what was his wellspring and source of genius? This is what he had to say on the subject. And I quote, Already, from earliest childhood, it was my deepest wish to understand nature, and through this come closer to the truth I could not find at school or church. I was repeatedly drawn to the forest, where I could watch the flow of water for hours on end without getting tired or irritable. At this time, I did not yet know the water is the bearer of life, or the source of what we call consciousness. Totally oblivious, I let the water flow past my searching eyes. And only years later did I become aware that this running water attracts our consciousness magnetically, takes a piece with it, with a force that is so strong that one loses consciousness for a while and involuntarily falls into a deep sleep. And so gradually I began to play with these forces in water and I gave up this so-called free consciousness and left it to the water for a while. Little by little this game turned into a very serious matter because I saw that it was possible to release my own consciousness from my body and attach it to the water. When I took it back again, the consciousness borrowed from the water told me things that were often very strange, and so the searcher became a researcher who could send his consciousness on expeditions, so to speak, 
And this way, I found out about things the rest of mankind has missed because they do not know that people are able to send their free consciousness everywhere, even where the seeing eye cannot look. This so-called sight practiced with blindfolded eyes finally gave me ties to the secrets of nature, which I slowly began to recognize and understand in their own fabric. And in due course, it became clear to me that we human beings are used to seeing everything backwards and wrong. The biggest surprise, however, was that we human beings let our most valuable part drain off as useless, and from all the great intellectuality that flows through us, we retain only the crap. Victor Schauberger. So, Mr. Mario, listen to that clip for the first time, like the audience. What do you have to say about that? Well, with the water trickling in the background, made me have to go. <laughs> um, no, what I thought very fascinating was who we have somebody who was able to transfer his consciousness into flowing water as if it were flowing energy, right? And through this flowing energy, water continuously runs all around this planet, right? Which is water. And we know that there is also water in space. We also know that it holds information. It retains information. So now this guy becomes consciously aware of all of this information that is flowing. He's able to take it, use it, implement it, turn it into free energy, give proof to that with a machine he creates. Like, how is this not fascinating to anybody? A man after my own heart, whenever he started talking about his thoughts on water, uh, this is, again, seems to be a recurring theme for us, and especially me, myself, whenever I'm going through my own personal growth and spiritual growth, you know, I, I have this strong affinity thinking about water having its own entity or having its own consciousness itself, and I've constantly said that to you in private conversations, and I've you know alluded to that here on this podcast, to hear somebody explain it in that manner or have that type of quote it when i first heard it it blew me away and the fact that he came up with this a, a sort of machine that basically was we're we're going to get into it it was one of the next steps into creating a viable machine that the nazis took appropriated you know misused or they try to create you know a war machine out of it and basically distort its meaning and it just I don't know I was fascinated by that quote I really wanted to share that with the listeners because I think it's important to realize that it's not just just positive things that can be you know, re- removed from this technology, right? Well, I mean, you, you, they they take these elites, those who are thriving after power, those who who right. just are, are attracted to, for the lack of a better term, evil. They can take good things and distort them. I think it's a perfect term, really. I mean, I don't I don't think it's lack of a better term. I think it's you hit the nail on the head right there. That's what it means, right? You've taken something that could be used to help 
people and living creatures and free energy you've created a way to create free clean energy and you've hijacked it and you've used it for financial nefarious powerful gain right and to do what else i don't know enslave people give me another give me a better term right for lack of a better term enslave humanity to consistently reach for energy, needful energy, right? To survive. Here you have a machine that's going to do it for free. This guy is, he's created this machine and uh, we're talking free energy. Again, again, you, know, you talk about Nikola Tesla in the same orb, right? But well, And then you have, you reference this all the time. This water technology is the same thing that we see people currently what was in the 80s there was an ohio man from columbus that created an energy or a free energy water machine hydrogen engine hydrogen engine i mean this is the stuff that schauberger was talking about here in the in the 40s in the 30s and 40s you know there was a a, i believe you showed another clip and you might have played it on the podcast about an african man that had created free energy free you know water machine this information is out there and this technology is out there and it's being bought up by private organizations. It's it's the same thing that the Nazis did. They kidnapped this guy. They said, you know, work on, on these UFOs, work on these Dyklokas, which is German for the bell. If you don't, we're going to take out your family. And what we didn't play was once he worked on this technology – and they released him back to his family. He died two weeks later. Yeah. Schauberger died you two weeks later. You gotta tie up your loose ends, man. You gotta tie up your loose ends. So, just evil, like you said, evil. It's evil. Now, going forward, talking more about this evil. A lot of this talk about Dyke and these Russian UFOs, because basically that's what we're talking about now. We're talking about all this technology that builds up throughout basically over 100 years, right? 100 years or more. Right? Exactly. So you talk, you go all the way back to um, the racing engine in 1849 in Scotland to the technology that they talked about during the Sonora Aero Club, right? The anti-gravity properties there to, you know, flight and, and dirigibles with... 19 or 1865 1864 you know with uh lincoln um solomon andrews technology that he tried to present to abraham lincoln in his war council to keely in 1894 1895 1896 with his machine that had plates and resonance plates and and key keys that was on his flying contraption that went zero to 500 miles an hour that was presented to you know the uh, the military there in Philadelphia or out in that field in Baltimore outside of Baltimore that was recorded by the Philadelphia reporter now you go into Brown's technology and Tesla's technology and this exotic technology that they're dealing with right and you got these connections with NIMSA and the real society. You got these technologies. You got you got this connection with uh, Charles Dalshaw, which is basically the the person who was reporting on the Sonora Aero Club to the Prussian military. 
Well, in Prussia is the same place where the Vril Society emanated from. And then you have the Vril Society experimenting with flying technology, having the RFZ-1, RFZ-2. Uh, some speculating that that information was coming from channeling. You know, people always talking about whenever they reference Nazi technology, the Nazis themselves admitting that their technology was helped along by entities outside Right, that that could very well be what they were talking about was their channelers and their occultists. You know, Maria Gar Orsic, not not Maria Orsic, but there was also that turn of the century uh, occultist that you referenced before in a previous podcast. So the person that I had referenced in the past was Bubba Vanga. She she predicted things. She was a blind Bulgarian woman who predicted 9-11 and is now saying that Putin will be lord of the world. Lord uh, of the world. Yeah. and she, Well, she's gone now, She, but she had predicted it. Uh, but you, was that who you were talking about? No, or? no. I actually, I, I misremembered, you know, like Roger Clemens. Uh, <laughs> I was referring to Madame Blavatsky, who was oh, into okay. the occultist, and she was, 1875 became prominent. Uh, she was a um, Russian seer. She was sort of the the beginnings of these channelers and you know the Victorian age sort of ghost. I'm just happy we were able to edit that to make it sound like we knew what we were talking about. <laughs> Interesting enough, Miss Blavatsky was referenced as a Russian, but actually would be in what today is known as Ukraine is where she's actually from. So hmm. imagine that. Imagine that. Um, but no. Would she be Ukraine or would she be NATO? I, I don't know. I guess that's a different podcast, right? <laughs> but no, it's, it's interesting that all these things are popping up. All this technology is popping up. And it's all sort of bleeding into each other, right? Uh, one then would have to ask, Jeffro, is there any sort of written information that something like the Dyke Locker was real? Right? You're saying all this technology is is valid. The science seems to be there. Show me the proof. Well, <clears throat> after the war, there was these... Okay, well, after the war, we didn't get a whole lot from the Eastern Bloc because Russia gained control of East Berlin and the right, Eastern right. Bloc. But at, after the wall came down, after the Berlin came wall, a lot of documents came out from Eastern... You know, Eastern Germany and the whole Eastern Bloc. And in those documents, there was a document that referenced a SS Gruppenführer Jakob Sporenberger. Say that again? Yeah. Uh, SF Gruppenführer Jakob Sporenberger. Okay, one more time. Oh, you dirty dog. Uh, SF, SS Gruppenführer mm-hmm. Jakob Sporenberger. Sporting, sporting. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, of course. Okay, now, uh, his story is the story of the Dyke the the written proof that we need here to, to finish up this story. Uh, he murdered 60 Germans and was brought to trial to Polish War Tribunal because it happened in the Polish area, okay. right? And, uh, but now we're getting into the actual technology here, right? And this this group in fear plays a part in that, and it plays in a part 
with this torsion technology we seem to keep coming into contact with, especially in our most recent podcast, right? We actually have come into information that this torsion technology combined with all these other technologies is going to explain the mechanics of exactly how a Hanabu, which is what the Nazis called their flying saucers, or this Daiklaka actually, how it actually operates. During this, in his affidavit, he tells all about Daiklaka. And it actually, we got a clip that actually tells about this and then even explains a little bit more going forward. The torsion field is the ultimate key to the unified model of physics, where we can now link consciousness, technology, and physics together in the greater totality. The elites within the United States military have known about these forces since the 1920s. What the Germans were working on during the same time period remained a secret until long after the war ended. In 1989, the Berlin Wall fell, and documents began leaking out of the former communist countries. Many of these documents had never been seen before. In 1995, a large group of documents were discovered in Poland, which tell a very interesting story about a fascinating object called the bell. The bell is an interesting story that has come out. Uh, it's one of those stories, incidentally, that's come out since the, the German leader for Einigung, the, the German reunification. It's a story that, in my opinion, lies at the very center of the Nazi UFO myth, this idea that the Nazis had field propulsion flying saucers and you know they took secret trips to the moon and mars and what have you the bell's a propulsion system it's basically a kind of reactor and that reactor is the power source for a thing called the haunabu this ss obergruppenfuhrer his name was jakob sporenberg and he was tried by a polish war crimes court after the war for the crime of having murdered 60 germans that were part of this project in order to keep it secret. And in his affidavit before the Polish war crimes court, he describes details of this project called Die Glock of the Bell. He describes a device that's bell-shaped. It's about 12 to 15 feet high, if I remember, and it's about uh, 12, you know, maybe 12 feet wide, it's bell-shaped. It's either, it's described in terms that, that make you think it's either a, a ceramic, cover or ceramic metal it's cryogenically cooled either with liquid helium or liquid uh, oxygen something that's going to, to super cool it and on the inside of this device there are two rotating cylinders Borenberg describes that they poured into these counter rotating cylinders a substance called serum 525 which was described in the affidavit supposedly as a very heavy dense viscous gooey metal that was a deep maroon or cherry red color there were enough details that you could sit down and kind of reverse engineer the thinking the physics thinking that the germans may have been uh employing in this device we've heard from a number of experts about the germans and their technology and the documentation coming forward shows that they were using a red mercury. 
Now, red mercury is very interesting because when you put it into a torus energy field and get it up to about 60,000 RPMs with an atmospheric pressure of 250,000 and apply an electromagnetic field, you get anti-gravity properties. So this Serum 525 is put into these counter-rotating cylinders, and they're spun up, you know, to high speed and in opposite directions. And what this is going to do, just to explain a bit of the physics for a moment, it's going to cohere the rotation of the atoms and molecules of this substance on one plane. Okay, so there, in other words, it's going to align the axis of rotation of these things. Sporenberg also describes that it makes a buzzing sound or a hissing sound. So the Germans actually nicknamed, apparently, this nicknamed this device Der Bienenstock, the beehive, because it's buzzing, it's making this buzz. When I was studying Delschell's artwork, um, I saw something that was stunning. Um, This had to do with the propulsion system, the energy system for one of these arrows from the 1850s. And what it was, was something that uh, Delschow identifies as a generator cone, okay? And it rotates, spins on a central axis that it's fixed to. And this mystery fuel, liquid fuel, is injected into the process. Well, the shape of this thing is the shape of a common shape of a bell. My jaw dropped because you're talking about Germans, you're talking about a spinning bell-shaped object with a secretive liquid fuel serum. Here was um, this same exact basic concept um, in the 1850s that Delschow clearly in the 1890s included in one of his drawings. We have indications that the Germans are experimenting with some substance that is being zapped with lots of electricity. And right there, that tells me plasma. The substance is heavy, it's liquid, and it's red. So that tells me it's probably metallic. It's probably an oxide of mercury and, you know, something else in chemical compound. So what they're creating in effect, is a version of the sun. Because the sun's a plasma, it's under electromagnetic stress, you've got the differential rotation of the plasma, and that's going to create what physicists call torsion. I think that the Bell device is a device designed by mimicking the sun to create a maximum torsion shear effect. And as a result, is going to create a kind of magnetic bubble or cancellation of the gravitational field. And in fact, this is what is reported of the bell because the concentration camp victims who apparently saw this being tested at night on the surface saw something that looked like a barrel glowing a pale blue, rising, you know, kind of levitating and then falling back down below the tree line. The Hounaboo is your classic UFO looks like a UFO that you've seen in a thousand magazines. So they developed the Hounaboo around the bell and they had to shield the Hounaboo because the bell gives off so much radiation and heat and a lot of other things. At the end of the war, the Nazis executed the scientists and technicians, the middle echelon scientists and technicians involved with the project to keep it from falling into the hands of the Russians and the allies. I think aspects of this project ended up in Argentina and were experimented upon 
under independent Nazi control even after the war. Which is very logical, because if you've got that kind of technology, the atom bomb is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a Model T technology. You can give that to the Americans, you know. But this we're going to keep for ourselves, and we're going we're gonna to work on this some more. And I think that's exactly what they did. All of this adds up to me that they are experimenting with a prototypical kind of proof of concept torsion technology, field propulsion technology. These technologies were combined together to develop a working flying saucer significantly in advance of any other technologies. So, Jeffro, how many times have you and I always made the correlation that the Nazis never really left? Like, it was never, it was never distinguished, or, you know, extinguished, rather. It was never extinguished. We just adopted everything. Like, we... This is it hard to fathom to think that this world is still run by Nazis at this point. Oh, I love I love so much that you want there. Love it. Um, but before before we jump down that that path, you see you kind of see I think where this is going. What I found fascinating about this clip was this is our smoking gun. This is our smoking. This is the documentation. That people want to hear. You you have the one gentleman in there talking about Dyklaka, right? The shape of the bell, right, was the exact shape of the Sonora Aero Club's generator device that they used in the Sonora Aero Club in the eighteen fifties, right? The generator cone. They he called mm-hmm. it a generator cone. It was basically the working engine, right, that they used. And if you remember going back to the anti-gravity technology that Peter Menace, the leader of the Sonora Aero Club, had, which was lost to the club once he died suspiciously, remember, going back to the first episode of this series? Yeah, Remember what it was that he used, the secret technology? It was the soup or the sup, this liquid, thick, viscous... Whatever soup, mercury. It was mercury. What? what, what I don't know. It sounds it like mer- it. Well, okay, so you could put food coloring in anything. Right? <laughs> so it it was mercury, and you, and I can't help but think of Bob Lazar and Element One Fifteen. Also, who's to say Element One Fifteen? I don't know if it has anything to do with mercury, but again, we're talking I, about. An I wouldn't element be surprised has, if it did. I mean, come it's on, possible. It's it's now it's another element that can be used for something that we're not being told 100 percent um or maybe this the, the mercury is something you know that was used throughout you know ancient time and ancient technology of ancient uh you know i'm gonna say it ancient aliens and maybe element 115 is a little more modern you know something that we are now in contact with more modern type of element we're, we're, we're taking information from ancient sources Right, and this is what the Nazis did. Because remember, the swastika is an Indian symbol for peace. Okay, but what's interesting is mercury originates from India. Mercury was supposedly the fuel source for the Vimanas. It's where cinnabar comes from. It's where mercury gets its red hue from. 
I like Cinnabon. I like Cinnabon. Right? All this stuff. I mean, I've, we've taken two, two episodes here to try to drive home the science and the science. the science, right? It was not like Fauci. We're not telling you one thing, and then you know, two days later, telling you something else on two second, you know, two minute interviews while torturing innocent puppies, right? While torturing innocent puppies, right? What a piece of shit! I guess he just favors sandflies. I don't know. No, I mean, piece of shit's a piece of shit. You yeah, can polish right. a turd at the end of the day; it's still a turd. Right, exactly. But more to this subject, I. I don't know how else to lay out everything from what they were talking about way back then. And and let's let's also remember we're talking about Schauberger's information. Mm-hmm. Once the Snore Air Club lost the technology or the information for the soup or the sup, they had no choice but to turn over to a different energy source, a different fuel source, which had to have been water, because every single time those airships landed remember they kept asking for water which would directly correlate to the technology that Schauberger was working on with his repulsing so now they it almost seems like the technology has advanced to the point where independently they found energy using just water to now they're using mercury which is a much more powerful metallic electronic source so that it could go ahead and retain that, that voltage. And now you you transmute that into this war machine that is Nazi Germany at the time. They have all kinds of money at their disposal. You've got people like Maria Orsic who's channeling this information from these off-world entities right you got the real society of themselves who have a lot of close connections to NIMSA which again goes back to the Sonora Aero Club and Dachau you see all these connections and after you see all these connections you have to ask yourself is it crazy to think that the Nazis had UFO technology Nazis WEF, UN, what's the difference? I just, what I find fascinating and more so now than ever, what we've seen time and time again, I mean, let's go ahead and talk about modern culture right now. What is a common thing you've heard in the past 10 years or less? It's rise against fascism. God, why can't I say it? Fascism, okay? Rise against fascism. Defeat fascism. Nazi this, Nazi that, Nazi everything. How dare you, how dare you, Nazi. What is what, what better way to hide yourself than in plain sight? And that leads me to this. All, you take all this information into consideration, right? You take into consideration the fact that you have U-boats going down to South America, very close to New Schwabeland in Antarctica. What happens in 1947? Are we talking about Bird? We're talking about Bird and Operation High Jump. Bird is the word. Bird is the word. Now, this doubles back to a previous 
podcast that you and I did. So if some listeners are listening to this one first, maybe go back and listen to the Operation High Jump episode. But basically, at that time when we presented the information, it was pure speculation that there was something down there. The The initial thought, it could have very well have been extraterrestrial or it could have been Nazi. Nazi technology. I remember actually mentioning it. In the so, previous podcast, with this new jump. information, can it even be debated if you use Occam's razors? What's more likely, an off-world humanoid, you know, presence down there that had technology that never that we've never seen, or is it more likely that there was a human evolutionary, you know, technology? By something that humans created. What Occam's Razor would say most likely it would be the human, the human population, uh, some sort of human population down there that had gotten a hold of some sort of technology. And I'll even say this if you guys think any of this is nuts, here's what I will tell you do this little thought experiment with me. Close your eyes, unless you're driving. Don't close your eyes. Open your eyes, open your eyes, open your eyes. <laughs> open your eyes. Think about 1903. Okay, and common knowledge that we were all told in school, that's when the Wright brothers, so we're going to go all the way back again to the first episode, there's a callback here. 1903 was the birth of flight at Kitty Hawk in North Carolina. Think about that paper mache rickety plane that had nothing but a propeller on the front of it, and we considered that flight, right? Okay. Okay. Go to 1993 in the Gulf War when the stealth bomber was in use. I don't think there's any propellers on the stealth bomber. No, but imagine, if you would, that thought experiment of what flight was 90 years apart. Okay? Now, take into consideration 1850... In 1945. 90 years apart, if they had the technology that Dalshau said they had in 1850, what kind of technology would they have had 90 years later if you make the comparison that 1850 was the Wright brothers, 1903, compared to what that through line was able to develop with a stealth bomber. 90 years later. 90 years later. You take the same through line because all this is being done by a private organization, private banking group, private occultist group, you know, called NIMSA or the Vril or the Nazi war machine once they came into power and started taking everything over. Imagine if that technology of anti-gravity that Peter Menace had, the soup, the, the slow progression of all that technology up through the airships in 1896, 1897. You mean to tell me that if that was the origin point with the racing engine back in 1849 and that period of time, that by the time 1945 came with all this other technology, you know, from Schauberger, from Tesla, from Brown, from Keeley, some of his anti-gravity stuff, you mean to tell me that the Nazis couldn't have had some type of technology resembling a Hanabu, re- resembling a UFO. 
or even use this technology and who knows i mean who who knows who who's to say that this technology wasn't uh wasn't mastered after the philadelphia experiment to where they could leap and jump in through time and i'm going to go back to one of our previous episodes with time travel where we speculate that what we know now is constantly being changed and possibly being changed for through those who have that type of technology. Maybe things are not playing out the way they quote unquote want them to. And they're going back and they're changing these things, causing a Mandela effect in our residual cells. Well, what one of the things that bird did say in operation high jump was in the next war, we're going to be facing an opponent that can fly from pool to pool in a fraction of, in, in seconds, was it? I'm, I'm paraphrasing his quote, but right. he had a quote uh, to, to that means, which would exactly describe these Hanabus, right? Because mm-hmm. basically, what we're doing the Dyke the bell shape, is basically the the centerpiece of this UFO that it rotates around it, and they had to some sort of somehow they had to insulate it within. The Hanabu within the because well, yeah, the they were talking about the radiation. Right, we were talking about the radiation. So the bell itself is not the UFO. That's just the power source. That's the just like with the Sonora Aero Club. That was the the generator cone. Right. So basically, if this is even remotely true, we're talking about a, a Nazi fringe group that survived. Doesn't have to be a large group, but a Nazi fringe group that survived in Argentina and down in South America. And is the and, power of the world. Right. And they end up having the ability to fly through space, reach the moon, reach Mars pretty simply. Man, I tell you what, if if that is the case, we better come up with some sort of space force or something to combat this. Or, or my friend... And the last sort of uh, clip I want to go ahead and play here. This one's a little bit lengthy, but this is again is our friend Walter Bosley saying something extremely interesting that we all really need to hear, especially right here and now in this time. Enjoy. I like where you're going with this. I would take it a step further. I, I, I have become... Um, a bit more and it's not my nature to be cynical it really isn't despite some of the criticisms you know people will hear me say about things you know some of the goofy stuff in this community but um, uh, I'm presently in in the last few years have been of the opinion that um, I would say rather than a contract rather than even well, it might have been a form of a treaty. I think what happened was, and this is speculation, but I think what happened was the um, the 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 realization, the revelation that um, what we had done, what had happened through Operation Paperclip, was that we had compromised ourselves, and this this post-war German group made it clear that we had compromised ourselves through Operation Paperclip because our our military industrial complex as such as we know it 
um, really, uh, really stood up and began to exist after World War II. And look how many of these Operation Paperclip associated Germans were involved in these companies, involved in the, the standing up of these programs. Um, all of them, NASA, CIA, all uh, levels of them. Well, even some of the aerospace companies and yeah. such. Um, y- yeah, you know, all of it. And I think the, I, I think it was a horrific realization, um, which, uh, you know, you talk, people talk about the Eisenhower meeting with the aliens. And I, I like what you said, because, you know, you have to consider what if it wasn't some, fantastical meeting with aliens what if it was the meeting with the post-war nazi international representatives and basically because think about what what eisenhower said in that speech of warning us about the military industrial complex think about that that to me suggests that the meeting the 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 famous meeting in the lore might have been with um with this not you know the nazi international as joseph farrell puts it and the culmination of that horrific realization Okay, was very possibly the JFK assassination. Okay, Um, and there are historical reasons to suspect the German hand in that, which is a whole other discussion. But also think of the fact that um, in San Carlos de Bariloche, famously, you know, connected with Nazi post-war presence down in South America, how. It, I think it's every U.S. president, is it since Kennedy, has gone down there at some point. You know, Now, it's a resort town, but there's a lot of resort towns all around the world and throughout South America. Isn't it interesting that all our presidents at some point um, visit San Carlos de Bariloche? Are they going there to meet with you know, the big representative you know, the big head of, you know, whatever this Nazi international is. Um, I, I don't know, but um, yeah, there, there's, there's reasons to suspect that what's going on here um, in, in being uh, allowed to be covered up and spun with the whole UFO ET thing, what actually might be going on here is something um, sadly and more darkly, very human, but, but very sinister. Um, yeah, and they couldn't just come out and be like they had to make the spin the you know aliens and and you know extraterrestrials because if they were to uh, how could they explain that you yeah. know that this group that was supposedly defeated during World War II and and that we won the war and they lost is back and yet <laughs> and yet here they were instrumental in building our military industrial complex. And increasingly it's become finally obvious to the public over the more recent years is our entanglement, not just our entanglement in wars, but how these wars are conducted. And this first, I I think maybe we had hints with some of the weird decisions that Harry Truman made during Korea, you know, in not that that, that there's the instance of not crossing the Yalu River and all that. And then Vietnam, that there was, you know, the people, you know, fighting Vietnam, they were like, wait a minute, we're over here for this goal, this, this objective that we're told and that the people are told, but there's people, the, the way we're fighting this, it seems like two steps forward, one step back kind of thing. And yet, um, the people that continued to get rich off of it were the people building the war machine. 
And now we're at a point where people are openly wondering, you know, let's see, 9-11, so we go to Iraq? What? And, you know, 9-11, uh, you know, uh, uh, bin Laden, Afghanistan, and yet we go into Iraq and we're there for 20 years? <laughs> Ultimately, what is that serving? It's serving the military industrial complex. It's serving the people building, the, you know, making money off of the machinery and, and all the. Yeah, war, war equals money, unfortunately. And uh, you brought up uh, JFK there. And, and, and through my research, uh, you know, JFK and his uh, you know, assassination, because JFK had connections in his early 20s with the secretary of the navy after world war ii james forrestal yeah and uh he kind of took jfk under his wing and uh you know looked at jfk as like a protege and they uh apparently there's a suspicion that him and uh james forrestal traveled to germany after the world uh, after the war uh, to see the the famous uh you know the glocka ufo bell craft that you know, as we've been talking about the, the German aerospace techs we're working on. And after they came back, uh, John F. Kennedy ran for Senate and Forstall became the very first secretary of defense. And out of that, it's, you know, uh, speculated that MJ-12 was born. And James yeah. Forstall being the one of the first members of uh MJ-12 or Majestic-12, as it's known, you know, the group of men overseeing the UFO and saucer technology here in the U.S., you know, developing their American uh, secret space program. So, and in my research, JFK definitely knew something about what we were developing and and what we had. And he was trying to maybe, uh, Jay Widener talks about this, he was trying to maybe force the hand of the cabal into revealing their advanced technology and their craft by saying that, you know, we're going to go to the moon by the, the late seventies, knowing mm. uh, dang well that we couldn't get there in standard rocket rocketry, you know, uh, yeah. Werner von Braun, you know, uh, it's always cited and it's always stated that, you know, he was just before JFK announced that we were trying to, we were going to get to the moon by the late sixties uh, in uh-huh. Congress. Uh, Werner von Braun, like a couple of months before that, was saying that, you know, it would take a, uh, a rocket the size of the Empire State Building to get to the moon. So it's kind of speculated that maybe uh, JFK was trying to do something. He knew that the technology that uh, the, the Germans had during World War II and that we were mm-hmm. trying to bring that technology over into America and develop it here uh, with some of the uh, Project Paperclip uh, people. And then that, that was the way that we were actually getting to the moon. And, and Sure. Maybe- yeah, I, I do think that there was there's, um, you know, a classified aspect to the technology that to this day still hasn't been revealed because uh it would have been applied to other technologies and continue to be military technologies and continue to be developed so of course it's going to remain uh classified um well and then trump not uh you know releasing the full the full um jfk file too he only released a a portion of the file as well so that makes you think that there there's something well remember Remember what I think it's uh, Joseph Napolitano, the judge, uh, 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 he says that Trump said to him when he asked him about this, he says, hey, you're going to release all this. And uh, and according to Napolitano, if I'm getting the name right, um, 
he said that Trump said, if you were to see what's in the file, he goes, you wouldn't have released it either. Uh, apparently there's something that's so, you know, WTF in there <laughs> that even Trump said, I, there, I, I can't release it. And so, you know, you think about that. Think about that context. What if go back to the hypothetical idea? What if, it, it's my opinion that we were very light. Here comes the cynical part that we were very likely um, essentially invaded through Operation Paperclip. And I say that because the origins of the Germany we know today, okay, the origins of what led to the Prussian states being brought together, the whole unification thing, just the, which then led, of course, to Nazi Germany. The origins of all that go back in German history to the medieval era with the Junkers, okay? And here's what they would do. They would choose a target that they wanted to essentially take over their thing, their region, their in whatever, their power, and um, they would befriend that target. And, you know, the number of years they would provide them with their expertise, their know-how, all the benefits of, you know, their agricultural technology and know-how, and they would build them up. Okay, while they were doing that, once they got them built up and they would ingratiate themselves with them, they would, you know, intermarry with the families and such. And while they were doing that, they would be quietly making overtures to that group's enemy or adversary. Okay. And then once they built up that one group and had their claws into them in all levels of their society and industry, then they would instigate a conflict with their adversary and they would back the adversary and then the adversary would come in and you know conquer the people who was the were the original target of the yunkers and um then the yunkers would shift their alliance openly to the invaders and then they would do that again to them now um then they started uh, uh using they started using industry more so we get to the 20th century and Hallmer shocked, and we have what Germany did throughout the 19th century, which really through most of that century, remember, it would have been the Prussians who are the descendants of this Junkers, this duplicitous Junkers uh, society or, or uh, class. Um, they would bring German industry to foreign countries, right? And say, hey, let us bring this industry, this industrial base to you or whatever. And they would ingratiate themselves with that nation where they would bring their technology. And then from within, through banking, through industry, through political influence, they would pretty much take over that country. And they would do it. It was kind of like a quiet invasion. Now, if anybody, this dates back to the medieval time, they were doing this for centuries using this model. If anybody went out of line or attempted to expose or resist this, there was this particular group that emerged that would do, get this, this dates back to medieval times, they would do very public and violent executions and assassinations to get, send the message, you will not resist. Okay, so now put this in the 20th century context. Okay, gee, um, you know, Colonel Harry Armstrong comes up with the idea of bringing German scientists to the States, and uh, he greatly got that idea 
through the German scientist he had known for 20 years. Okay, German aerospace medicine experts. And it was like, yeah, yeah, you know, you, you could do this program, this plan where you bring us in. And Armstrong was like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. So apply that old medieval Yunkers model to United States in uh, World War II, post-World War II. And it's like, okay, they get their guys in. And where did they get their guys into? The heart of our defense structure. And what did they do? They bring German industrial expertise and say, yeah, United States, you need to have what we call this military industrial complex to really build up and on and so forth. And you see where, oh my God, they use their old medieval tricks to essentially, and then in the intervening years between World War II and say the JFK assassination, they had what? Nearly 20 years to, to fully have their hooks into our military industrial complex, uh, but also to, to, you know, banking influence and social influence. So that by the time Eisenhower, it's made clear to him, basically, we own you. And he tries to warn us, okay, it's too late. And so that by the time JFK realizes what's going on, he is going to resist them, like, you know, we know. And so what happens? Remember that medieval group that would do very public and violent assassinations? It, what I'm saying is the history of the United States since World War II, when you're looking at the context of Operation Paperclip, it fits exactly the, the model that these nefarious Prussian Yunkers Germans have been doing since medieval times when they want to take over a country. And I, I think that's what they did to us. I, I think that's why the, the worst things in our political history have happened since World War II, right? Our, our politicians are the most corrupt that they ever have been in our history since World War II and, and on and on and so forth. And when you look at this model that I'm talking about, it explains it better than any other possibility. And um, it, it's kind of scary. Well, Jeffro, yeah, scary indeed. And so much of what he just said speaks volumes to everything that we've said through previous podcast episodes. It, it seems like every time we release an episode, things start to make the bigger picture a lot more clear or, you know, continue to beg questions more. And, uh, you know, it, it, it could be any, it could be anything, but I mean, this, this theory, it, it seems so very, very plausible. Does it not? I mean, like he says, you have a lot of patriots out there, and then we all are basically living off this ideology of the greatest generation. You know, World War Two, World War One. You know, all these great soldiers, all these great men. Um, and it seems like there's a clear delineation between the end of World War Two to present about how terrible our leaders have been since. It's almost like. It was like a spigot turning it off and on. And the, the very few people that spoke up against any sort of machine, any sort of pushback of any sort of power at all, were 
immediately eliminated in that time frame. Look at the people who were eliminated in that time frame. Bobby Kennedy, JFK, MLK, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, all gone because they were they were challenging the, the status quo. They were challenging the machine. I like I like the machine. Yeah, absolutely. They were challenging the machine and they had to be eliminated. It's it's like uh, it's like this song calls a personality. When a leader speaks, a leader dies. Absolutely. And I, I, I when I first heard this, I was like, "Holy shit!" This, this is so basically his his premise is maybe the the meeting between Eisenhower and the aliens. What was it in uh, fifty? Two or something along that those, along those lines, right? Was it fifty two? I'd have to check. I believe it was in. I believe it was before that. I okay. believe it was way before but that. The speculation is, the Nazis came up and said, "Hey, by the way, you know that uh, Operation High Jump situation? You think that's uh, you think that was bad? We got the technology, but there had to be some sort of treaty because they didn't have the numbers." They didn't have the infrastructure. Possibly, you know, me just guessing here, they had a couple hundred, maybe a few thousand, but they didn't have millions like we did. Yeah, so I was looking, I looked it up, and, and you're you're right. I don't know why I was thinking before that, but uh, it was right around February 20th, 1954, is when this Eisenhower treaty with quote-unquote extraterrestrials took place. Okay, so, and at the risk of not giving away too much for the third episode... Right, because the third episode is going to get into a little bit more of the mm-hmm. politics of the time with JFK, but the fifty-four meeting with Eisenhower and and the thought here that that was with the Nazis and not the aliens. Something very important happened in nineteen fifty-two that might have accelerated a treaty between this nefarious, you know, Nazi group and and the U.S. government. In 1952, if you guys remember, there was that famous UFO flap that flew over the Capitol. And my speculation is this. Those really were some form of extraterrestrials. And the American government was like, what the hell are these? And the Nazi group, which was small at the time, just a few hundred, maybe a few thousand, said, what the hell are those? And they said... We need to come together. We need to figure out well, what the hell this is. Because something else happened in those early years that I'm going to divulge on the last episode. That things started accelerating at that time. Or what if it were, what if it was Nazi technology threatening? Almost push, like a false flag event to force a treaty. a strong arm, yeah. Could have very well been that too. But that 52 flap over the White House plays a big part whether like you said it was a false flag by this Nazi group to scare the Americans into some sort of treaty because make no bones about it this this breakaway civilization which is where we come to now this is what it is this is a, a small contingent of the Nazi group that had this <laughs> advanced technology they just their numbers were dwindled. They were forced out of their homeland. They did not have the numbers. They didn't have the infrastructure. They didn't have the warehousing. They didn't have any of the basically the industrial might that we did as Americans. 
right? So whether it was a false flag or whether it was a real intergalactic or interdimensional or or, or alien interference over 52, right. either, like you said, they forced the American government's hand in some sort of treaty with a false flag, or it was a holy shit moment for both groups right. that right. said, something's going on. We need to come together to figure out what this is, and we're going to combine our technological advance with your military might and your access to oil and your access to people power to go ahead and create this what Eisenhower later talked about industrial complex which has if anybody has has talked about or thought about it going up even to today right we're going into places that we have no right going into for no reason except for one thing Energy, money, power. Our military are making decisions that don't make any sense. And the only people that are profiting off of these are places like Northrop Grumman, Halliburton, you know, all these places that make these military weapons. Yeah. So, again, going to this whole idea of propping up an enemy only to make it decay from the inside out. Which is what these Prussians or these Yonkers did to their foes, and we basically, like he said, what are we, we doing sold our now? Soul. What, are, what are we doing now? That's what I'm our, saying. On our own soil, what are we doing? What are we doing here in the United States? We're decaying from the inside out. I mean, if you haven't seen anything in the past, I don't know, ten, fifteen years of riots and and, and differences and and things just being torn down neighborhoods being burned to smithereens people being murdered and and hurt in the streets over over own emotional ideologies instead of you know conversation to figure out and find out where the real negativity lies it's all emotionally charged and they know what they're doing they absolutely know what they're doing just to illuminate again one of the things that he said on there that fascinated me was this Since JFK, every president has gone down to Argentina, down to that resort. Since JFK, the guy who was assassinated. Now, did JFK go? I'm not sure, but he didn't go a second time. That's a good point. (laughs) But no, listen, this is – and this Argentina is where supposedly this, this group of Nazis have their base. Every president's been there. Every president, like Walter Bosley said, every president made a visit down there. Trump went down during the G20 summit. Wow. I was maybe, I was under the impression that he hadn't, but I double checked here real quick and he did go down there during the G20 summit. But what's in Argentina, man? Um, A large coalition of former peaceful Nazi world leaders. Nazi world leaders. Hey, listen. Um, It does bring a lot of things to question. Going into the last episode of this series, you're going to see where this leads, and you're going to see, you know, some more connections with Kennedy, and you're going to see how it plays out, and maybe why, like Kennedy, Trump was so worried about space. Interesting, Jeffro, and I I think uh, a lot of people's. Wheels are, are spinning as much as mine, um, but we're going to wait till next episode to get into that. Obviously, we got to leave some for next time. And uh, just to let everybody out there know, 
We've got this episode we're about to release right now that we're recording. We're about to wrap this one up. We're going to get into the third part of this uh, little series here. And uh, we also did another recording earlier today with uh, Hauntings of Ohio. So those guys were really cool. We had a really good conversation with those guys. So um, month of October is shaping up to be pretty good one so far. But, uh, you know, we'll let everybody else... Looking at that, and also we're still working on our merch page. Um, we're it's going to happen. We're going to get it done. It's just taking a little bit longer than we like. We're hopefully real close to it, and uh, once that gets launched, we'll make sure we let everybody know. Jeffro, do you have anything to add before we wrap this one up? Man, I don't know how much more I could add. <laughs> okay, yeah, there's there's quite a bit here to uh, wrap your brains around. And once again, we appreciate everybody reaching out. We enjoy the back and forth. Please, again, mention the podcast to friends, family, whoever you know. Maybe somebody who might may, may find it intriguing, free thinking. We welcome it, and uh, you know, if, again. Like we said earlier in this this particular episode, if you find something that you don't necessarily agree with or you find evidence that maybe we overlooked, help us out. Don't just get angry. Don't just leave a negative comment. Just say, you know what? Reach out to us. Say, hey, I'd like to have a conversation with you guys. Let's talk about it. Let's get a few things straight. We're happy to do that. But, um, Jeffro, until then. Until then, Mario.